Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Dr. Darbuso podcast. My guest this week is Dr. Joseph Ladipo. Dr. Ladipo is Florida's Surgeon General and the author of Transcend Fear, a blueprint for mindful leadership in public health. I really enjoyed Transcend Fear. I found the book really inspiring, and I have been recommending it to all of my friends. In today's episode, we talk about what helped Dr. Ladipo overcome adversity in his life, including childhood sexual abuse. He shares a really sweet story about how he met his wife, and we also talk about how he survived cancellation in academia, something I can relate to, and how he went on to join Governor Ron DeSantis' team. Just a reminder that this podcast is not therapy, it is for informational purposes only, and is not a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review, and you can find The End of Gender at drdebrousseau.com and on Simon & Schuster's website. You can also support the podcast on Patreon so that I can live on to get canceled again. Dr. Ladipo, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. I'm so excited to talk with you. I have so much admiration for you and your work. You've been a sane voice throughout the pandemic, and uh, I really appreciate your commitment to data and evidence and your refusal to cower to other people's criticism. So can we start by talking a bit about your background and how you went from doing your MD-PhD at Harvard University to practicing as a physician on the front lines of the pandemic to becoming Florida's Surgeon General? Hey, well, thanks for having me on. Um, I, I actually, I would say the exact same for you. I mean, you, you're an academic and you stepped out of line, you know, with the orthodoxy. So thank you for that for me. And thank you to you too. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, uh, that's right. I mean, that's, that's been, you know, that's been my path. I was a tenured professor at UCLA and I thought that I was pretty darn sure I was going to retire there because, you know, I was doing my research and, you know, if you have tenure at a good university and you're happy there academically, and you like the area that you live in. This was all pre-pandemic. I got tenure actually during the pandemic, which was a little bit dicey because I had already started stepping out of line, but it was too important like it, to not do that. That's how my wife and I felt about it. But, you know, I really thought I was gonna retire there. And then I got, you know, thank, thank the Lord, I got the call from Governor DeSantis's office to consider being the Surgeon General of the state. So now we're in Florida. (laughs) And it looks beautiful there. So I want to ask you, because I've heard you say in other interviews that when you started writing and your perspective was not necessarily in alignment with what the accepted narrative was about the pandemic. I was just this morning rereading an op-ed you wrote for the Wall Street Journal titled, Lockdowns Won't Stop the Spread. This is from April 2020. What was it like to be in that environment in which you had colleagues that were pretty much opposed to what you were saying. And it, it felt like in some ways like they wanted to suppress what you were saying as opposed to arguing with you in good faith as academics should do. Well, that's exactly what happened. And, you know, it was interesting. I mean, the whole pandemic was interesting. It was, it was almost as if just large swaths of people were hypnotized, you know, and sort of moved one way and then moved the other way and then did it again. And early on, that was a period when everyone, just about everyone, thought that, like, you know, 10 days to stop the spread and we'll lock down and things will be better. And so that's kind of where everyone was moving. 
And it didn't make any sense from an epidemiological perspective. It didn't make any sense from an economic perspective in terms of weighing the costs and benefits of, of what that decision would mean and, and what the end game was. Like you, and now we're seeing what the end game is. There was, it was really just a, a terrible idea to do the lockdowns because it basically got us nothing, but it cost us tremendously. So, so I ended up, I, and I happened to also be working in the hospital during the week that Governor Newsom in California, I was working at UCLA Ronald Reagan Hospital, shut down the state. So I actually initially wrote an article that was accepted by USA Today, and then I subsequently wrote the one you're describing, Lockdowns Won't Stop the Spread. It was in the Wall Street Journal. And at that time, it was sort of before everyone did believe in lockdowns just about, but it was before things became very political. So at that time, the reaction I received was mostly like, oh, wow, Joe, I, I didn't even think of that, which was weird. They go, oh, you know, wow, Joe, that's, you know, thanks for sharing that perspective. And then things totally became very political especially around the time of George Floyd's tragic killing. And then it was okay. It wasn't okay if you didn't like lockdowns to protest, you know, to, to, to gather and to say that in public outside. That wasn't okay. And it also wasn't okay to surf if you were in California. You know, lots of things weren't okay. But like that, it became okay to do what people should, of course, be able to do, which was to voice their anger about what happened to him, what they believed that represented, and all those things. So that was okay. That got the stamp of approval from my colleagues in public health. But the other stuff, that's not okay, you know? And that's when the sort of the, the bad feelings set in by many of my UCLA colleagues. <laughs> and you've had a front seat to all of this. I mean, I was just saying, Eric Weinstein is one of my friends, and we were tweeting back and forth the other day, and I was saying to him, I've lost complete faith in the institutions after the last two and a half years. You have had a front row seat to all of this, and I've experienced so much of it directly. How has it affected you? You know, I mean, it's really been such an interesting ride for us, my wife and I and my kids. It's definitely been a fun and interesting experience. And by the way, I agree with you about the lack of loss of confidence. I have, I mean, I, I have no confidence in the, and many Americans feel this way too, more, more on the sort of right side of the political spectrum than the left. But, um, but it, it's been very interesting for, for us. You know, we were living in Los Angeles. I, I was certain. I mean, I would have bet thousands of dollars, like many thousands of dollars, that I was going to retire at UCLA. You know, we were very settled. And I had, I had multiple clinical trials, NIH-funded studies. You know, others were kind of, you know, on their way. And... and so that's what I was doing. We were unhappy with the situation with the in terms of the lockdown policies that we're continuing on. Obviously, when we got the call from the governor's office 
and we were, you know, and my wife was like, go for it. And I was like, oh, you're right, honey. And came here and started this position and, you know, and we've taken positions that have been contrary to the, you know, to the, to the, whatever the, the main beliefs or the main messaging. It's, it's, I mean, that's been very interesting, you know, between whether it's the, the kind of negative, what's the right, the, not, not even so much the criticism, because it's like beyond criticism, because it hasn't been about scientific debate. It's been about that person's bad or that person's reckless. He's a bad person. And that's been interesting. And it's the other thing that's been actually for me extremely interesting has been the fabrications. Like, you know, I will say the sky's blue and the report will be that, you know, he denied the existence of, of clouds in the sky. Just like just making stuff up. So it's just profound. I mean, I, I did not know that people could make stuff up, put their name on the article and go about their day. You know, it's, it, but that's what happens. And, and you know, and I'm sure you, I know that I'm certain you had this experience, too. And I've, I've seen some of your work and, you know, you you're obviously uh, you're obviously a, a kind person. But, you know, you're like, you're you're out to get people. And I mean, I guess better late than never. I'm glad I'm aware that they just make stuff up when they want to now. But, uh, yeah, it colors how you interpret everything. Oh, yeah. It's crazy to me. I, I mean, I just find it funny now, but it definitely was a process for me to get to this place and not to actually be upset by it. Do you think, though, that most people who are in opposition to you actually believe that? Do they actually believe the things that they say about you? Or is it very much, it's more cynical in that they really are trying to promote a narrative and they're trying to shut down anyone who's against that at all costs? Because especially when it comes to COVID, I think it has brought out a lot of fear. You know, I like that you said we must make health policy decisions rooted in data and not fear. The fact that you called that out, because I do think so much of this has been about playing into people's understandable anxieties about their health and their safety. So in some ways, I think, okay, maybe some of these people genuinely are so freaked out that anyone who is challenging them, they just can't process it. Or do you think it's like most other issues in that? I hate to say it, but even as a journalist, I see this, that journalism has been co-opted. It's political now. It's, it's definitely all of the above. Like there, there's, there's no doubt. And it might even be even worse than that. In terms of some of the um, some of the some of the forces pulling strings in the background, there are individuals who genuinely believe that you know path A is the correct way to manage something and not path B. And I believe this for scientific reasons, and that's a very small proportion of the population. Most of my colleagues. From, um, from what I've seen, from kind of reading what they've said, what their problem is one that I myself suffered from years ago, kind of, you know, in, in my past, was the problem of being unable to separate what is happening from your, essentially your political beliefs or your kind of philosophical beliefs. So that's, I mean, you see that the, probably a, a good indicator for that is when 
people immediately jump to denigrating the messenger. That's that's a pretty especially people who are qualified, who have a background in public health or a background in health policy. You know, they who have a scientific who have scientific training. Like that's a pretty clear indicator that essentially something is essentially triggered you, if you will, or you know, touched a nerve that has made it such that you just have to go to that place where you're not talking about what is, but are instead kind of vying for whatever your objective is. Now you're trying to win. It's not about knowledge or understanding or comprehension. It's about winning. So that there's that. And, you know, and they're co-conspirators, if you will, in the media. I mean, from some of the articles, especially from you know, some news outlets that have a very consistent, you know, way of framing stuff so that it looks a certain way. A good example of this is how when those national school examinations scores for, I think, fourth graders were, you know, recently released. And instead of the obvious, which is that when kids are not in school, you know, they don't learn. It's like this, like, elaborate. I mean, and they do it brilliantly. They're so good. You read these stories. And if you're not sort of paying attention, you can kind of go along with um, with what they're this this trail of breadcrumbs that they're leaving for their readers. But it's this thing about how, you know, mental health has been a challenge before the pandemic and the ch- and the pandemic exacerbated it. And our schools are underfunded. And all, I mean, not to say that these aren't true, but, you know, <laughs> the kids weren't in school. So it's, I mean, and that, I mean, they're clearly, it's fascinating. I mean, they're clearly essentially operatives. Do you think we will ever return to some semblance of normal in terms of what life was like pre-pandemic? Or is it going to be that, say, blue states and red states are going to do their own thing? And like so many other issues, basically two different countries are taking place within one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the only thing we can count on for sure is change. So where we are now won't um, won't continue, uh, continue sort of inevitably. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. I think I think we're 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 lucky these are very interesting times to be living in you know and seeing everything that's happening and and um, just all the issues that are going on right now i do think that things are are going to are kind of eventually going to kind of move more definitively in the in the right direction in a better direction for humankind so i i i i see that as the outlook you know, no idea, of course, what the timeline will be and no predictions about that. But I, I think we're we're heading in the right direction. What is the consensus in the field among doctors in terms of the way public health has played out? Do you sense that most people are in agreement with it or are they skeptical or even critical, but afraid to say anything or to show resistance because of what the repercussions will be to them in their careers? Yeah, yeah, so so there are a couple things that are going on from my observations. So doctors tend to be a liberal group. And as I mentioned, 
one of the challenges with the pandemic is that people have had difficulty separating their their interpretation of the data with their political outlooks. So that's been, I mean, that's been a challenge for a lot of my colleagues. I mean, this stuff is ridiculous. You know, there are, from my observations, more doctors who are feeling like, feeling uncomfortable with, with what they've been saying and kind of waking up to the fact that essentially they've been, they've been played, you know, this like kind of orchestra that's been going on for, for the past two years or, or in, in counting. And then there are some doctors and I'm friends with some of them who, and I've been friends with some of them since early in the pandemic, who've had created these networks in the background, it, kind of these back channels where there's been open discourse, there's been in general, just, you know, frustration or shock at the way the pandemic has been managed. Just weird times. It's actually, I mean, you know, it's it's actually one of the things that I I I talk I try and address in my book. And I, even though the book's like about public health, honestly, the core of the book is about um, an experience that I had that other people who want that type of experience can also have, which is going from like when people need to show other people that they're a good person, that's the same, you know, that's the same syndrome as when people see something that's wrong, but don't want to say something about it. Like the stupid masks on little on toddlers and little kids. I mean, Lord have mercy. And I, um, I myself, I, I used to be kind of part of that same frequency before the pandemic. And it just so happened that you know, again, the book is about public health, but really the reason I wrote it was because before the pandemic, I ended up working with a guy who um, used these techniques that um, some of them were like Chinese medicine and meridian theory and chi and stuff that I didn't even knew was something that we accessed in this dimension to help me get uh, to get free of stuff that that you know that made me afraid and made me think about you know prioritize other people's perception of me over whatever it was i believed i should do or i believed was true or um you know made me unclear or confused about how to how to think through things or handle things or respond to things and um and that's that's i mean that's that's the that is the core problem and what allowed the pandemic nonsense to go on for as long as it went on. In Transcend Fear, your book, you disclose how you experienced sexual abuse as a child. And I can't imagine discussing something so personal publicly, especially considering your job. So I want to salute you for that because I imagine it it must have been a difficult decision or difficult to come to a place where you were comfortable in doing so. Can I ask you, what advice would you give to anyone listening who may have gone through something similar? Because in my audience, I sense that many people have experienced this and they're struggling with it. I always advocate for therapy. I think therapy can be very useful for people. And I also think child sexual abuse is so common 
but I don't think society talks enough about it or its effects, uh, particularly on boys. Oh, yeah. No, you're you're totally right. You're totally right. I hope it's okay for me to call you Deb, right? Of course. <laughs> well, no, you're totally right. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's kind of, it's sort of fascinating and sad because, of course, the major driver for not talking about things like that is, is shame. It's terrible because the victims, victims feel shame of all types of abuse, right? They, they feel shame and, and then shame, shame becomes a prison. And it also is a poison. When that babysitter broke my boundaries, when I was probably about four, four years old or so, I actually, at the time, I didn't think it was a big deal. But it turned out that what happened was that, um, was that it really instilled fright in me that affected, it permeated everything about, about my life. And it also made it impossible for me to authentically connect to other people. All this time, you know, I've been living my whole life that way. So I thought I was fine and I thought it was normal. I met my wife. She lived in a different city. She lived in San Diego. I was in med school and in graduate school at that time in, in Cambridge. And I didn't mean to, but, you know, we met on a plane. We kept kind of talking when we parted ways and went to different sides of the country. And I fell in love with her. And I didn't mean to. It literally happened from talking like we would talk for Eventually, we would talk for like eight, nine hours. I'd see the sun come up in in Cambridge, in you know, in Massachusetts. We we talked for so long, and I fell in love with her. Didn't know that 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 was what happened, but that's you know that's what that's what happened. And she came to visit. We extended her stay. I went to visit her. And she came back, and we were like, "What's the point? We don't want to be apart." And and her her family helped move her stuff over to Massachusetts. But when you fall in love, one of the things about love, if you really, if you've actually fallen in love, because love is, you know, love is this, is this, it's this pure thing. Like it's the most powerful thing in the world. There's nothing more powerful in the world and nothing can hide from it. So all the things that don't work in your life, when you fall in love, they come up to the surface because nothing escapes the light of love. And so my wife, who fortunately for us is, is was far more emotionally and spiritually enlightened than me, like could see that I was a wreck. All the stuff came to the surface. And, you know, and I got therapy. She was like, you got to go see someone. I got therapy. And we did that for years. So I was basically drowning in my, like in my stuff, in all my garb, in my kind of emotional garbage and and my wife was eventually at the end of her wits and she found Christopher Meher for me and what was different about him in terms of people getting help so therapists I totally support that like they can you know a good one as long as it, the person is skilled they'll they can only help but one of the things I learned from him and from working with him is that the effect that trauma daily stress, the effect that those things have on us, and everyone experiences daily stress, right? That's just, that's just how it is. The effect that they have on us is not something that you can rid yourself of just by working in here. 
In fact, here it turns out to be the like not the place to go. Instead, and it, 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 I hear myself, it sounds a little crazy, but it turns out it, it certainly was true from my experience, and I, I do believe it's true for everyone. It turns out that you actually have to go into the body. And so most of the work with Christopher, some of it is verbal, but a lot of it is physical. Different types of manipulations that are, most of them are very, are either painful or very, very, very painful initially. And what happens is that the pain reduces and eventually some things even feel good, like they don't hurt, you know, like, oh, that feels good. And what's happening is that he's, he has different techniques that basically address areas where chi is not flowing and he allows the chi, kind of does different stuff, and the chi flows, pain goes away from whatever the manipulation is, and you get out of that more freedom. So it's either, you know, it's make more freedom from fear. My experience was that that allowed me to achieve outcomes that I could have seen therapists for 10,000 years and never achieved, not even 1% of. So that's been kind of my experience and my lesson through that. I think that's such a beautiful story. And I think it's amazing that you've been able to overcome that adversity. It really speaks to something about your character and why you are able to sustain probably the attacks on you that happen as part of your job now. We have about five minutes. I want to ask you very quickly before I say goodbye. The whole issue of gender. I think it's great that Florida has taken a very firm stance in terms of being in opposition to transitioning in children. And I think it's also interesting that that your policy says no in terms of social transitioning as well, because that's a distinction that many people don't seem to make. Or, I mean, in terms of what we see being promoted more widely, it's so in the opposite direction. But even that you guys have been willing to put your foot down and say, no, social transitioning is not a good thing either, because from a research perspective, that is associated with kids going on and down the line and continuing on with transition. But I wonder, what do you predict in terms of the issue of gender how do you see this playing out? Do you see it being as devastating as I'm expecting it to be? Yeah, I mean, it's already been very devastating, as, as you know, and you obviously know about a gazillion times more about it than I do. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's very, it's another one of these issues, actually kind of similar to COVID, where many of my colleagues are just, have a lot of trouble separating their political ideals from good judgment. And when I say good judgment, I mean looking at data, applying what we know about, you know, sort of humans and living and life and making a decision that is wise or a recommendation that is wise. That's like totally out the window. You know, you've got the data that, you know, that exists thus far doesn't prove that there's any benefit whatsoever. But in in the face of that, you're recommending treatments that we don't know the long-term effects of and are not benign treatments. So like the wise recommendation in that situation is to proceed with extraordinary caution. Because no one wants to hurt anyone. But when you hurt a kid, 
that's like, that's, I mean, that's stuff that it's hard to, I mean, I personally would have a hard time sleeping at night. That's like devastating. So, so that's, I mean, that's, that's been our assessment of things. And, you know, I do think that more people will sort of realize, because we're very consistent in the messaging, right? Like the prior studies, you know, pre-puberto and peri-puberto kids show that 80, 90% of them, essentially it goes away in terms of that desire to change gender. You haven't done a, a clinical trial. So... I think that that message is getting through. I do think that most, for many parents, they are concerned with how these gender policies are are being implemented and this like sexual education is being provided to small children. And so I think that they're losing, I think they sense that also in terms of losing public opinion and public support. So I think it'll work out well. And hopefully they'll do more actual, you know, rigorous studies instead of pushing radical therapies on children without strong evidence. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much, Deborah. Thank you very much for, thanks very much for, for having me.